Okay, so welcome back to the Daily Sports Science Locker Room podcast. Um, I'm hosting today and I'm here with a, with a good friend of mine and a colleague of mine, Kev, Al, uh, Kev Al Patel, or I'm sure he won't mind me calling him Kev, which I call him day to day, um, who is a performance psychologist currently working with QPR across the club um, and, and various other athletes that I'm sure he'll go into um, to talk about his journey. Um, first time I've hosted for a long time, Kev, so um, it's good to, to chat to you today, mate. So welcome. Thanks for having me on, Ross. Really appreciate it. No problem at all. I'm looking forward to delving into the uh, into the ins and outs of your role and 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 chatting about elite sport and and how you can and we can offer different services. Just a quick one for the listeners. So um, lots of different things available on Daily Sports Science at the moment, exclusive to members. So we've got the position specific profiles for all uh, GA footballers now with all videos and and basically job descriptions and essentials for people to go on to if they want to have a look and have a look at the membership. And we've also got brand new webinar webinar series that we're starting to release now um, for the kind of the autumn autumn series and lots of different uh, speakers on there and I think you're speaking on, on one of them Kev right? I am yeah I'm going to be delivering a, a goalkeeping psychology masterclass I think so uh, I'm really looking forward to that as well. Excellent we'll dive into a few things today I'm sure about the GK stuff given your background but um, but yeah don't give too much away because the, the, the members will, will get exclusive rights to that um, but yeah brilliant no thanks for coming on uh, a, a privilege to chat to you and I think it might be good just to start as we normally do with a podcast especially someone coming on for the first time could you talk a little bit about your journey um, and how you got into sport and then obviously then like as a performance psychologist. Yeah, sure. I think like most people that are in the in the football world, you you kind of grow up and you, you see your idols on TV and you think, oh, I fancy having a go at that. So you sign up for your uh, your local Sunday league team, just as I did. Uh, I remember signing for a team when I was nine years old. And um, within a couple of months, I, I couldn't get into the team. I was an outfield player, so I ended up going in goal to try and get minutes on the pitch. Um, and after a couple of months, I was lucky enough to get scouted by, by Chelsea. So I got picked up by Chelsea when I was uh, nine years old and went on a six-month trial at the club. Uh, I didn't get offered a contract there, so I ended up going to Watford and doing my under-11s and 12 seasons at Watford around the time when A.D. Boothroyd was the manager. And I think that was when Ben Foster had his first loan from Man United, so around that, that period. And then after leaving Watford, I went to Wickham Wanderers and I had arguably I'd say three of the best years or the most enjoyable years that I've ever had in football really really good environment really well-run club um, and I trained there with the um, under 13s 14s and 15s so I did those three age groups and then towards the end my under 15 season started training a bit with the first team goalkeepers so that was a really really good learning curve for me as well and then obviously the introduction of the the EPPP system um, at the end of my under-15 season kind of killed off the, the lower league clubs in terms of the transfer fees and whatnot. So they ended up closing the academy down and um, I became a free agent. And that was probably one of the hardest periods in my career because I'd grown such a, such a strong identity with Wickham. It was like a family club to me. And that became a really hard period for me. So um, I went on the search for another club, went on trial at, uh, at Barnet and QPR, funnily enough, um, spent six months at, at either club um, before signing a, a kind of two-year um, part-time apprenticeship with, with Stevenage. And in that apprenticeship, I was allowed to do my A-levels so I can continue my education, which a lot of the lads were doing kind of their BTEC courses. So I was allowed to do A-levels, which was fantastic. And um, at the end of my two years at Stevenage, I wasn't offered a pro. So um, naturally, I think the next course for me was to kind of try and stay in sport because I absolutely loved it. And um, psychology just seemed the, the natural fit for me, given my experiences. 
Um, so I went to university at the University of Nottingham. I got honours in psychology uh, there. And then in order to become a psychologist, you have to go and do a master's. So I was hunting for master's courses around the country and I managed to hit the deadline for St. Mary's to go and study at St. Mary's and do applied sports psychology. Um, so I did a year there as well. And then over the last two and a half years, I've been studying towards my, my chartership. So to gain my charter status as a psychologist. And along with that, I've had some great opportunities to work at some fantastic football clubs, most recently QPR. So that's kind of been my journey through the system. And I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into lots of different parts of the journey along the way. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kev. A very similar uh, journey to myself. So I know exactly what you went through, especially the educational side, managing to, to do your A-levels along the football. How tricky was that? I found that very tricky in terms of not being in the mainstream, especially the time I did it, like everyone did a VTEC or MVQ or whatever it was termed then. You was kind of an outcast for doing for doing A-levels and it might affect the training schedule. Was there ever instances where you couldn't train because of it or you found it difficult to jug juggle the schedule? Yeah, I had a very adapted schedule compared to most of the lads. I would actually do two days a week with the lads full time and I would do three days a week at school. So I think it was Monday, Wednesday and Friday I would do um, at school and then Tuesdays and Thursdays and a Friday I would do a half day on the Friday. So I'd kind of do a hybrid between the two. I think the biggest impact it had on me, not only from a, from a technical, tactical, physical and psychological standpoint um, in terms of the lack of development that I had missing out on those days, but also from a social point of view, I think it really impacted me in the dressing room. I think when, when all the lads are in there all, all the time and they're integrating with one another, they build those strong bonds and those relationships. And I always felt going into that environment that, you know, I was kind of tacked on the end just because of my situation. And that, that wasn't any, anyone's fault. It was more just the outcome of my scenario. Um, but I, I don't have any regrets over it because I think we talk a lot about transitions in, in football now because of the percentages of making it being less than 1%. So, you know, for me, it was a necessary evil to have to go and do A-levels because ultimately I knew that the likelihood of me securing a long-term career in the game was going to be so minimal. So, you know, being proactive in that sense was really beneficial because I am where I am today because of those decisions. But I do often look back and think, you know, what, what if I did commit five days a week to be a full-time you know, scholar and where could I have got with my career if I had committed in that, in that sense? Sure. No. Well, I think in hindsight, similar to myself, you made you made a very calculated decision based on where you think you could get to. So, you know, obviously there's some luck involved in that, but I think you saw, you know, where your future was. Um, very, very interested. I say quite a lot about sports science, especially in football. Like I feel that people that understand the game and people that not necessarily like play to a really high level, but really understand the, the nature of the sport and the con, you know, the culture and things like that have an advantage when working as a support staff. How do you think your experiences have benefited you coming into working in a football club from a psychology perspective, not from a player or, or even a coach, although heavily linked? I think, I think the biggest thing that people involved in the game before working as part of an MDT or a support staff at a club is, is the feel, particularly in football. I think football is, as I always like to describe it, one of the most chaotic environments that you can work in, in terms of elite sport. Just because of the, the culture, the standing history, the way that clubs have traditionally been run through the years, I think it takes a, a real feel to be able to navigate your way through conversations and navigate your, your way to achieving certain things. Um, a lot of people have their own values and beliefs and they hold those quite dear to themselves. And I suppose my job as a psychologist is to kind of navigate those things and make sure that everyone feels they're being part of the, part of the conversation. So a lot of the work that I do will integrate a lot of different perspectives and 
my job, I suppose, is to try and make the physio feel as important as the sports scientists or the sports scientists feel as important as the coaches. So um, using that kind of feel that I gained from my playing days and seeing how the coaches interacted when I was in the system has really allowed me to inform a lot of the conversations that I have today about players. So I think feel is the most important thing. And then secondly, you understand the standards that are required in the environment. Football, I think, has a real, you know, not knack, but they have a real drive to maintain high standards. So timekeeping, for example, is a really, really big one in football. You know, managers hate it when you're 30 seconds late. I mean, if you look at some of the fines list at pro clubs in terms of being late for meetings or being late for training, they, they are bang on the money with timing all the time. So for me, I understand that value. And that's something that I, I practice in my, you know, in my day-to-day -day work at the, at the clubs that I work at. So I think when you when you've worked in those environments previously, you understand the nature of the environments and that allows you to fit in quicker. And then once you're accepted by the coaching staff and the people around you, that's when you get that buy-in and rapport. And that allows you to do some of your better work in organizations, I think. Excellent. Good stuff, mate. You've kind of touched upon the next question a little bit in terms of the type of day-to-day -day work that you do. But I guess in a nutshell, what does sport or performance psychology mean to you? Um, what does it mean day-to-day -to, -day to be able to enhance the performance levels of, of MDTs, of players? And, and how do you go about that? I think, I think sports psychology has, has a real stigma attached to it. I think people don't truly really understand what it is we do. And I think until a couple of years ago, I didn't really understand what I did either, to be honest. Um, it's such a general topic, and that's perhaps where some of the stigma comes from. If I had to describe it to someone in a nutshell... The way that I would describe sports psychology is using our understanding of the mind to drive performance in individuals and organizations. So when I say individuals, I'm talking about how can we help players use our understanding of confidence? How can we use our understanding of how the body responds to pressure to enhance performance? Can we give players strategies, interventions and advice and knowledge on how their mind operates in that 90th minute when they're under pressure? Because at the end of the day, that's where they're earning their corn. You know, managers live and die by the sword and they need players that can perform under the, the highest levels of pressure at any moment of the season. So that's how I would describe sports psychology in terms of individuals. In terms of organisations, I very much see it as a case of how can we streamline systems? How can we make things more efficient? How can we get information communicated in a better way in order to improve the environment in which people operate in? So I, I've always said that sports psychology is divided into an individual and organization approach. And I suppose they're not mutually exclusive because individuals as, as a collective create an organization just as the organization can develop the individual as well. Brilliant. No, it sounds, it sounds really interesting. I guess so then day to day, what does what are those little things that you do to try and create that? Like you spoke in, like about difficult conversations or navigating conversations in certain ways, especially I'm interested from like how you interact with the coaches as well, where you could have some quite strong beliefs from coaches on, on how to do something, how to coach and very different ways you can do that. How do you maybe navigate certain conversations that you think maybe it'll be better for a certain group of players to, to be coached in a slightly different way or, or with a different tone or something that's a bit more difficult for you to approach? It's really tricky. And I think football is the one environment where this is particularly tricky because of the, the strong beliefs that you've mentioned. And I'm, I know from your, your own experience as well that you've had to navigate this as well. Um, the, way, the way that I go about it is... is kind of having consistent messages. So when you're sitting down with a manager and you're trying to provoke behavior change, perhaps in the way that he sees something or the way that he believes in something, I believe in having just consistent conversations. So really asking them to reflect on 
what the outcomes are of their current line of thinking versus what their outcomes could be if they saw things in a different way. So, you know, it's very, very difficult because at the end of the day, the manager holds a lot of power in the football club. They are the ones responsible for getting that buy-in and rapport from the players. They're there to deliver results. And ultimately, they're, they're next on the line if things start going bad. So you can understand why they hold those beliefs. But I suppose as a psychologist, you're trying to get the message across that things could potentially be even better if you saw things in a more open way. And I think the, the issue that a lot of psychologists face in these environments is that you need to have an openness from the coach anyway. There needs to be a level of openness to try and get work done. So the way that I try and go about doing that is by having those consistent conversations, you know, checking in with the manager, seeing what they want from their team and what they want from their players, and then trying to almost get him to see things in a different way by planting ideas or giving him suggestions and manipulations that he could do in training and really just trying to build my relationship with him. So our relationship, rather than being a, a psychologist and a manager, more of being critical friends to one another. So just as much as I might give him suggestions about something, he might also give me suggestions on how I might interact with a player, for example. And I think when you build those relationships as critical friends, as opposed to building them as a manager and a psychologist, it creates more openness in the relationship naturally. And then that allows that though those sharing of ideas to occur yeah i think that's a great point like openness from everybody involved in the in the two-way thing is, is important isn't it kev and that's something maybe that holds maybe like any in any part of the mbt could hold someone back if they haven't got that um from developing just a little bit around the players then so like over the years i know it's there's been a stigma attached that if a player goes to a psychologist they're seen as soft or they've got an issue or and uh, we all know that's that's definitely changing and i think the environment that we've worked in there, there's not that stigma attached at all to that how have you seen that evolve from a player perspective has there been like less reluctance for players to come and see you in recent years and, and what do you think that we could do better as a as an industry to really promote the work of, of working with players and, and giving them the, the support they need I think football is moving in the right direction. I think a lot of the stigma came from kind of old school managers and old school coaches who, who believed that seeing a psychologist was always a weakness. But I think as, as football's evolved and as time's evolved and also the, the profession of sports psychology's evolved, I think managers and coaches have become more accepting of sports psychology. They understand the benefits and that's translated down to the players in terms of how they perceive psychology in the environment. And then also from sports psychology, I think, we began this career path being quite scientific in our approach and using very, very big words, which people didn't really understand. And I think over the years, over the last 20, 25 years, the reason why it's become more accepted is because we found a good way to communicate with players. We understand players better now. We understand the language in which we use to communicate with them, which allows that buy-in to, to happen. And the best way that I describe it is whenever I deliver workshops to players, I always put a picture of a kind of Freudian style psychology session. And I say, you know, what do you guys think of this photo? And obviously the photo has a picture of a psychologist and then a lady lying on the couch talking about all her problems. And players will normally say, oh, this is what psychology is. You know, this is what I expect from a session when I have a session with a psychologist. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Sports psychology isn't about sitting in a room with a player and just having a conversation about all their problems. It's about being out on the grass with players, having those one-to-one -one detailed conversations, going through video analysis with them and asking them why they made certain decisions. It's about really being involved in the day-to-day -day running of a, of, of a team. And I've always viewed myself more of a, a coach without the expert coach knowledge, but more with the psychological knowledge 
than I have with identifying as a psychologist because I feel that really helps me connect with the players. And I think the players view me in a different way because I try and take that approach. And I, I feel, at least I hope anyway, that that's allowed me to do some half-decent work in the environments that I've worked in. Yeah, no, you've done some you've done some great work. And we'll come on to maybe the connection you have with the goalkeepers in particular, based on your experiences in a little bit, Kev. Just flipping a little bit, just within the player, like I know, like a big topic in recent years is is, is around mental health of, of people in society, not just not just players um, and, and elite athletes. Could you talk a little bit how like you might embed that mental health practice into the into work and how prevalent it is within within the elite sporting world? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly prevalent. And I was, I was doing some reading the other day. I think it was um, 38% of active professional footballers. This was done in 2015. So 38% of active professional footballers have experienced depression at some stage in their career. Mm-hmm. That's a frightening statistic. If you're thinking about over one in three players will experience a mental health issue at, at one point in their mm-hmm. career. And the most interesting part of that is they actually perceive a lack of support in the industry, which is frightening when you consider how much more access we have now to psychologists and to clinical psychologists and to counsellors and to support staff. So it's something that has progressed really well over the last five years because we're talking about it more, but there's still more that can be done. And I think that's always going to be the case as we learn more about mental health and and how the mind responds when when we do undergo these issues. The way way that I believe is the best way to help players with this aspect of, of their mindset is really to start with education. I think a lot of players don't understand the symptoms of mental health or how how significantly mental health can impact you. Obviously, suicide's one of the largest killers of men, I think under the age of 45, I believe it is, um, just because of the the pressures that men have to experience. And without educating players, they're not gonna know how to check in with themselves. They're not gonna be self-aware enough to understand why they think or feel a certain way. And I've probably lived through it myself. I think all of us have lived through a mental health episode at some stage in our lives. Now, I think back to that time after I left Wickham, when the, when the club shut down, I completely lost all my self-identity. The club that I envisioned, envisioned myself playing for as a boy, you know, they closed the academy down. I had no pathway left there. And we, we all go through these periods in life where we struggle, we overcome, you know, these hurdles. But the ones who have the background education or an understanding of why they're feeling a certain way tend to cope a lot better than people who don't have that background education. So I first and foremost believe in educating players through workshops, through talks from external speakers, through people's lived experiences. I think that can give players a really good appreciation of what they might experience at some some points in their career. And then the second way that I think we can help players is by just being mindful, monitoring and observing. So obviously we have the, the Brum system at the club, which is really good in terms of getting self-reported questionnaire information from the players. And then also as well, I think you can learn a lot about people through their behaviour. I think you can learn a lot about people through how they interact with one another, how they communicate with certain people. You might notice a behaviour change in a player, for example, where one day they come in and they're really, really bubbly and they're happy and they've got a smile on their face. And the next day they're quite ratty, they're quite erratic, they're a little bit irritable with, with the people around them. And that might be indicative of, of a safeguarding issue or a welfare issue, which may not even be related to football. But it's that ability to, to kind of take yourself away from the pressure of the environment and really just look at the human themselves, which allows you to notice those things, I think. 
Yeah, excellent, Kev. Just a, just a quick note on the prompts for people that, that don't know listening. It's an adaptive version of the, the POMS, the profile of mood state, and it just gives us an idea of where they are when they fill out in terms of anxiety, you know, the vigor. There's lots of different um, mood profiles on there, to, um, easily accessible online if people want to go and look for it. Um, Kev, I'm interested to know your process around when does something not become like a performance psychology problem and becomes maybe into the more realm of clinical psychology like depression and what process would you follow with a player then that starts showing signs of that that you you want to seek further help so i think the first the first step in this is identification can we identify potential symptoms of mental health issues so for example depression might be prolonged periods of wanting to sleep or very very low mood over a long period of time um, a change in their enjoyment of activities that they previously enjoyed. It might be indicative of them secluding themselves at lunch because we get to see the lads in every day uh, over, over the course of the day. How they behave around the training environment might also be indicative of that. And then the second thing would be to have a conversation with the player, not necessarily explicitly labeling things because I believe if you label things, they become the label. So you just have a conversation, you check in with them, you ask them these questions about sleep, you ask them these questions about diet, activity, and you can get a real gauge of where a player's at just by having those really brief, informal conversations around the training environment. And then if I believe a player is demonstrating a number of symptoms of mental health, i.e. the ones that I mentioned regarding depression, that would be the point where I think you get the club, club doctors involved. Obviously, as a, as a performance psychologist, we're not qualified to deal or treat mental health disorders, but we can um, potentially support in the diagnosis and transfer of information. So that would be the point where we get the club doctors involved. The club doctors will then have their own assessment tools. So we use some really good um, monitoring tools, which escape the top of my head at the moment, but we, we use some monitoring tools which allow us to assess things like depression, anxiety, um, and then more severe disorders like schizophrenia, et cetera, like that. And from there, it's really down to the doctor's decision. And I know the doctors here use quite a strong MDT approach. So gaining the perspectives of sports science, medicine, um, the physios, myself, and they'll make an informed decision on how to proceed. So that might be going to a GP to get a referral to a, a counselor or a clinical psychologist. It might be medication. It might be different forms of, of talking therapies. And that, that's really the process that we have. It's all about communicating through the MDT and really working through the doctors who have that expert knowledge of the field. Yeah, and, and not being scared to signpost externally and, and get external help if that's the right thing, right? You know, some people are a bit scared of going outside. Um, just flipping back that a little bit, Kevin, just I just want your view on around the topic of mental health and like this. Sometimes there's a real separation in, in the psycho in the psychology world around performance and well-being and that they're two separate things. Now, I'm of the opinion that they're very interlinked and, and one can interact with each other. What's your view on that? How strong is your view on that? And, and is the well-being of the player always the first thing you go to before the performance or does it depend on the case? I think me and you, Ross, share, share our opinions on this. I, I'm very much from the camp that, that well-being and performance are, are interlinked significantly. I think at the start, at the start of my career, when I, when I began this journey, I, I was obsessed with performance. It was all about what marginal gains a player could make on the pitch, what, what they're doing on the pitch, how can we make them 5% better over the course of a season? And then since I've started working more embedded in environments, I've really begun to realise the importance of well-being and how the well-being of a player actually impacts performance anyway. So then you have to ask yourself a deeper philosophical question of where is the starting point? Do you start with the well-being or do you start with the performance? 
Some might argue that performance would make a player feel better, but then some could also argue that performance is not the only thing in an individual's life. So I, I really believe in, in, in the well-being aspect. I really believe that if human beings are feeling their best self, they're always going to be able to access their best self on the football pitch. So checking in with players in the morning at breakfast, you know, how's your day? You know, what did you do last night? Have you been playing PlayStation with the lads? You know, what, what, you, what you do in your summer? Have you got anything planned? You know, how's your driving test going or your driving exams going? Just small conversations like that can really give you great insight into, you know, how a, how a person's operating away from the environment. Because from my own experiences anyway, perhaps on days where I didn't feel my best, you know, as we all do in football, we all put a mask on. We come into work or we come into train and we say, yep, I'm fine today. When in actual fact, you know, you might have had, you know, something going on in the family. You might have had a death in the family. There could be issues with the girlfriend at home or the partner. There's all these whole host of issues which could be happening away from the environment, which then impact you in the environment. But the problem in football is that we don't always get access to the external world because we're just concerned with what's happening in the building. So I've always believed that the well-being aspect is, is the most important access point to performance. And I think that's where practitioners in particular can do their best work. But obviously everyone's different. Of course, no, you, you, you put it really well. But I think to be really, like, really impactful in the environment is every staff member has to have that active involvement in someone's welfare and well-being. It can't just be down to the, the welfare or liaison officer or the psychologist. The coach has to have an active interest in the welfare check and making sure they know their players. And I think that's how you get the best out of the players um, and, support, and support them the best. Those are the best managers, though, Ross. If you look at all the top managers in the world today and you look at the way they are with players, they're the ones that, that really put their arm around them and check in with them. And I remember seeing lots of stuff about Sir Alex Ferguson, how when he signed players, he would go to the house of the player and sit down with the mum and have a conversation with the mum. Yeah. I mean, that's what you call about building relationships. That's why players love to play for him. So you know, for managers out there, if they're looking to gain a marginal gain, building relationships with players and understanding them beyond the pitch is, is the best way that they can do that. Totally agree. And I think it's important to note that that's not the manager being soft. So Alex still put the boot in when he needs to put the boot in or, or threw a few teacups around the change room. So it, it's, it's the balance, isn't it? Like being honest, but also being supportive and being there. No, I totally agree. Kev, I'm going to move on to a couple of terms that maybe we use within your job role and maybe some bigger like terms that are used within psychology and just let you explain them a little bit and how you use them the first one i'm going to speak about is purposeful practice something that we've we've tried to embed across the philosophy at qpr in the academy um something that we fully believe in as a mantra as part of training but could you maybe just explain like purposeful practice what it is um and how you go about supporting that and and, and helping the players deliver that day in day out so first and foremost for me purposeful practice is probably the most important skill that any athlete in any sport can learn because I think it's the one thing that they have complete control over in terms of their training where they can make marginal gains. So purposeful practice is broken down into four key components. It's, it's practicing, but practicing in a way in which allows your brain to adapt to make bodily changes. So for example, the four components of purposeful practice are practicing with a, with a specific focus in mind. You know, what is it that you're working on? The second thing is to have a goal. So what are you working towards? The third thing is to get feedback from what you're doing. So what are you learning each time you do a rep of that particular practice? And the fourth thing is pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. So the best way that I can describe it in terms of an example is it might be you're working with a forward. Okay, the forward's struggling to, to score goals. 
well, what types of finishes are they specifically struggling with? Is it first time? Is it on the half volley? Is it with their weaker foot? Is it a diving header? And when you have a conversation with a player, you can quite quickly establish what they might be struggling with because they'll, they'll openly tell you, I'm really struggling with my weaker foot finishing. I don't feel confident with it. Then you can go away and help them set up a practice on it. Okay, we're going to work on weaker foot finishing today. What's the goal? The goal here is we want to score out of 100 shots, we want to score 60, 60%. That's our starting point. The next progression might be every time you strike the ball at goal, I want you to give, give me a gauge about the feeling that you got. Did it feel clean? Did it come off the laces? Did it come off the particular part of the foot that you were looking to make contact with the ball on? And then pushing yourself out of your comfort zone might be, okay, we're going to take this back five yards, or we're going to add a defender in the way, or we're going to put a goalkeeper in the goal, or we're going to put those nets which cover particular parts of the goal so you can strain one side. And that's what purposeful practice is. It's about breaking down a particular skill into manageable parts and specifically training your brain to focus on repeating that specific skill to make that marginal gain. And I think, you know, you can do that across any sport. I think you can do it in even you know, our profession as an MDT, you want to learn more knowledge. Okay. Go and read five books a year. What's the focus of reading those books? I want to take away key themes from each chapter. Okay. Brilliant. You've done that. What's the, um, what's the feedback when I'm reading, I don't feel like I'm engaged in what I'm doing. Okay. So the next thing to do is to make sure that when I'm reading, I turn my phone off. So it's not distracting me. So you can apply this principle across not only sport, but, but life as well. And I think this is a practice that I really buy into because ultimately players have autonomy over purposeful practice they can go away on the pitch and they can work on it themselves it doesn't require a coach to go and do this all it requires is educating the player on the topic and they can go away and do it themselves yeah very well put the, the way i see purposeful practice is kind of twofold it's as you said the player's engagement and link to the performance and being wholeheartedly into that practice and practicing very well but also we do a lot of repetitive stuff around technical practices and to make sure technique's good here. So I think we have little phrases like, you know, brush your teeth. So daily brush your teeth, little things like that might engage someone when it could be monotonous. But also I think the coaches, um, like, like you said there, going into detail around like forwards not scoring goals. Okay, let's break it down specifically. And is the coach putting on practices to allow that person to, to, to practice these things that need to be worked on, not just them practicing in isolation. It has to be a whole program. So that's where you probably come in and, and the discussions with the coaches to say, okay, how many opportunities have they had to finish off their weaker foot in training? If they haven't had any, then they can't really moan that, that it's not improving. So I think it's twofold. I think um, I think it's a great concept to be working that's, towards. That's an important point though, Ross, because managers have to manage the entire holism of a team, right? And they might miss details, which might be, um, they might represent certain opinions that they have. So for example, the manager might say, oh, our player's underperforming, you know, he's not for me. But then unless you really look into that player, understand why things might not be going wrong, the analysis or the GPS or, or what we're seeing on Huddle, which is our video analysis system, might not actually indicate what the manager thinks. So if a manager says a forward's not shooting enough, if we've got 10 clips on Huddle which show that he's shooting loads in the game, the manager might have been overlooking that because he's looking holistically at a team as opposed to the micro processes that are going on. Yeah. So that, I suppose that's where psychology and the MDT come in. 
Yeah, and even at first team level, senior level, like all your coaches, you've got two or three first team coaches working in different units. That's the detail they need to provide to the manager to help the manager. Um, and, it, and in the Gaelic world, the selectors and stuff, there's people around to be analysing this. So it's, it's a fantastic point. Moving on to one other term, so I don't want to go through the whole like psychology textbook with you, Kev, because you, you'll probably hate me. But the <laughs> next one, um, just looking at something I think Van did around the last two or three years is quite an easy thing to say, especially from a coach's perspective. And we talk about this term called resilience. Coaches are now saying we need players who are resilient. We need, and sometimes I think maybe they, some people misinterpret the actual, what is resilience? We can say that the hard person who goes through the brick wall has good resilience, but actually it's, it's a lot deeper than that, as, as you know. So could you speak a little bit about what it means to you and some practices that you might do within clubs to work on resilience for players? So resilience is the ability to overcome adversity quickly. That's essentially what, what the science says. What that looks like in a football sense, I think, doesn't fit the definition. I think when managers talk about resilience, I think they're talking about the ability for players to, to perform under pressure. They're talking about the ability of players to go 1-0 down in the first minute and be able to stick to their process and come back. So resilience, by definition, in comparison to what people might talk about in a football club, are two completely different things. So I think that's first and foremost where the conflict comes from. In terms of how you build resilience... I think it's very, very difficult to build resilience in a player. I think a lot of resilience comes from their experiential knowledge of their career. So what they experience when they play in matches, what they've experienced in their home life and their upbringing. And I think you see this a lot in boxing. You, you look at boxers, for example, who a lot of them have come from very, very tough backgrounds and, and socioeconomic um, situations. And sport and boxing in particular are their roads out of poverty, which makes them very, very hardy and resilient individuals. Building that in a, in a training environment, in a football club is very difficult because how can you replicate the pressure of having to score a goal to you know, win that goal bonus, which might put dinner on the table for your family? I mean, you can't replicate that pressure. If you look at non-league footballers as well, they come from a similar situation. A lot of those guys are, are playing for their mortgages, a lot of them. That two, 300 pounds a week that they make, you know, puts food on the table for their family. That's resilience. How do, you, how do you replicate that in, a, in an environment? It's very, very difficult. So when we talk about developing resilience, I think first and foremost, a lot of it comes from someone's experiences and their, their current situation in terms of how they respond to, to pressure, how they respond to, to um, adversity that they might experience in terms of injury. I think those things, first and foremost, build that character. How, how you could potentially build it in an environment, although artificially is perhaps constraints on training, so, for example, having a match where the manager gives every single decision against one team, it might be a blatant penalty, but the manager's not going to give it. It might be, you know, a red card challenge, but the manager's not going to give it. It might be the manager pulling players off from one team. So one team's playing with nine men, the other team's playing with 11 men, and whoever loses the match is going to have a, a forfeit at the end of it. It could be little manipulations in the training environment or little manipulations in the, within a training session which allow you to build that resilience. And I think back to my, my days as a scholar, Ross, we had um, a pre-season drill that we did at Stevenage um, in pre-season. Looking back on it, it definitely wasn't designed for, for any sort of physiological outcomes. It was built for resilience. We had to carry these tractor tires and they weighed about 20 kilos around this lake, which probably had a circumference of about three miles. And our goal was to get back with the tire in under 10 minutes, which wasn't really realistic. These are really old school practices. 
and no one ever made it back. And if we didn't make it back in time, we'd have to do push-ups on the tire, up-downs as they called them, the army style stuff. And thinking back on that now, that was resilience because I knew in the 90th minute in the game, everyone else in my team had gone through that pre-season drill with me. So I knew that I could count on them to, to do their job at the end of a match when we're all tired and when we're all knackered. And also when you experience other things as well in training, when you have a hard training session and you know you, you feel knackered and you've got lactic acid running through your legs, I knew that I'd been through the worst of it in pre-season. So that made me resilient to overcome this situation in the present. So I think a lot of the old school practices that, that managers had back in the day, although they perhaps weren't morally or ethically correct, or even by science standards, you know, gold standard practice, I think what they did give a lot of players was insight into what it looks like to be hardy, what it looks like to have grit and determination and resilience. And I think young players today do miss out on that aspect of, of the environment, but at the same time, it's a lot, it's a, it's, it's a healthier place to be as a player now compared to what it used to be. So yeah, the practices have, have definitely changed, but the, the concept of resilience is, is one that we're still looking for ways to, to develop in young players. Yeah, great, great stuff, Kev. You, you touched upon my next question, really, and something that's maybe banded around by coaches that have probably been in the game longer and, and probably ones that work with you when you was younger, is that there's so much support nowadays from all different angles. We're looking at everything from a sports science perspective, psycho psychology, medical perspective. We are looking at every detail. Is the player okay? Ask them lots of questions. Has that affected that grit, that resilience, those hardy kind of qualities by how much support they get now? Hmm. I think, I think potentially, I don't think young people are significantly less resilient than perhaps we were when we were going through the system. I think that's that kind of, that kind of mindset, you know, when you grow up, you say, oh, they're not X, Y, and Z because they're young and they haven't experienced the world like we have. I do think young people are very intelligent. I think young people are, are very much more in tune with how they're feeling about themselves. I think they've got a better appreciation of their self-awareness. I do think at times we do do too much for them in, in organizations um, because we have access to all these different forms of support. And actually sometimes the best thing that we can do in some situations is to do nothing and allow the player to, to work things out for themselves. So the best way that I can describe it from my perspective is that if a player and a manager, let's just say have an argument or a disagreement in training and he gets sent in, I then as a psychologist have a decision. Do I go in and check on that player to see if they're okay or do I leave them alone to kind of process what's happened and figure out if they can get through it by themselves? If I intervene, am I taking away the autonomy? If I, if I do intervene and I have the conversation, I might be safeguarding their welfare. It's a, it's, it's a knife edge. And I think the balance is really hard to get right because you want to build autonomous players because when you're performing in front of 80,000 people in the stadium, there's no hiding places. You're gonna be called every name under the sun and if you can't handle a conversation with your manager in training, how on earth are you going to handle abuse, you know, behind the goal for, for 90 minutes or 120 minutes in a cup final? So everything that we do as an MDT, I believe, in a training environment has a huge impact on the player. Even those micro, micro points that happen throughout the course of the season, they have some form of impact down the line. So every decision that we make in terms of, you know, whether we intervene or don't intervene has an impact at some stage in their career.
yeah very very interesting stuff there like i think just from my own my own practice as well like how much support you give the players from a nutrition perspective from you know education around sleep and all these things which you have to do it's your job but ultimately are the players ever thinking those things out themselves are they learning to cook proper meals because they're being provided and so it's, it's, a, it's a real balance from the top i think about decision on when to step in and, and do your job to the best and when to let the players figure things out so that's that's a really interesting concept kev thanks um just moving on a little bit now to touch upon like your, your goalkeeper stuff and I say your goalkeeper stuff because there's a lot that you've got going on so I'm just going to list a few things here you've got your own podcast um, goalkeeper specific podcast which I'm sure you can explain in a minute you've got a Twitter account called the GK Mindset um, obviously you used to play in goal um, and you're doing a, a webinar exclusive to, to the DSS members around this kind of concept can you just explain in a nutshell kind of like your affiliation and obsession with goalkeepers and and what you try to bring from a psychological perspective to, to that position yeah it was weird it was um it was during lockdown um i think everyone just had too much time on their hands as i'm sure you, you can relate you're at home you know you're sitting on your ass and you're not too sure what to do with your time and i just thought i was watching a lot of football on tv prior to lockdown and there was a big debate in the goalkeeping community about how commentators talk about goalkeepers in terms of how they analyze the position so you'd obviously have your pundits on monday night football and they'd say oh goalkeeper shouldn't get beat at the near post he should be coming for this. He should be saving it this way. And it would open up a whole debate on Twitter. Twitter's obviously the, the hub for everything football talk, as, as you know. And I was reading all these conversations and I was thinking, oh, you know, I can really relate to some of these points. When I was, when I was a player, a manager used to say to me, never get beat at the near post. But then I think about some of the shots that I conceded. We're talking about players rifling the ball at 100 miles an hour from about 12 yards away with no reaction time. How on earth am I supposed to get myself set, move my hand in the right position and put that ball wide of the post? Sometimes it's just not savable. And that, that's what inspired the podcast. The podcast was inspired by passing information from professional footballers and professional goalkeepers lived experiences of the game so that people like, like me and you who maybe haven't had that insight really at the top, top level get. So a young goalkeeper who's nine years old can relate to, you know, Chelsea's number one and say oh well he can see his goals at the, at the near post as well and this is how he deals with it and I think sharing that information allows young players particularly going through the system now to, to really relate to the professionals and understand what it takes psychologically at the top level to, to forge a successful career so that really inspired the podcast and and through that uh, it kind of just happened out of nowhere I kind of got a, a half decent following um, a lot of people started messaging me on Twitter saying Oh, I've experienced this. I can't believe that he also goes through that as well. And when you when you break it down, the professional playing in the in the Premier League experiences exactly the same thing as Tom, Dick, and Harry playing in Sunday League. It's exactly the same phenomenon, just in a very very different environment. And I think through the podcast, it's allowed me to connect with a lot of really really great goalkeepers and great people, and really kind of build a community which champions psychology at the heart of goalkeeping. I've, I've always said and maintained this is that goalkeeping is 20% technical, tactical and physical and 80% psychological because most goalkeepers, what separates the guys at the top and the guys from the bottom is not necessarily their technical ability, but rather how they can perform under pressure and deal with, with the demands at the top of the game. I mean, we're talking about a position here which has the ability to define the storyline of a match. You know, if a goalkeeper makes a mistake, Everyone looks at him, everyone blames him. 
if a forward misses the chance, the worst case scenario is it's nil-nil. So the, the way in which we view football puts a lot of pressure on goalkeepers. And the, the aim of the podcast was to try and demystify the stigma around goalkeeping and kind of give people access to, to sports psychology within the context of the position. Brilliant. And just to give listeners a, a flavour, what sort of goalkeepers have you had on in terms of uh, some, some big names? Yeah, I've had um, so Chelsea Chelsea goalkeeper Marcus Bettinelli. He's um, he's a friend of mine. We used to train together a couple of years ago, and he he obviously agreed to come on the podcast. His episode has been particularly popular because of his experiences at Fulham as well. Um, I've had Nick Zarnev, who's the New Zealand number one international, come on the podcast. Nathan Ashmore, who's a really really good friend of mine from from my training days at Boreham Wood, he's probably the best example that I've got from from a non league perspective. James Belshaw at Bristol Rovers, who's playing under Joey Barton at the moment. Um, Andy Lonigan, who's obviously had a great career at Leeds and uh, more recently um, at Liverpool. I've had some I've had some really really good guys on on the podcast, and you know I've really tried to have a range of guys who have played at the top in the Premier League all the way through to guys who are playing in the Conference South because. I think the more perspectives that we can give goalkeepers at different levels, the, the more information that can get put out there. And that not only benefits, you know, the guy sharing the information in terms of getting stuff off their chest, but also benefits guys listening because they get that access and insight that they might not previously have had. That's brilliant, Kevin. Where can the listeners find that? They find that on, on Apple and, and Spotify and stuff like that? Yeah, it's on Spotify, it's on Apple, um, and you can find it on my profile as well on Twitter. Um, if you just follow me at the GK Mindset. Um, you can find all of it there. It's on most major streaming platforms as well. So um, yeah, I, I just honestly, I couldn't believe like the, the response that I had to it. Like I was quite taken aback by it because it was just a side project for me at the start of it. So brilliant, brilliant. Sounds fantastic, mate. I really appreciate your time. I'm going to end on on one question, summarising question, if you don't mind, and it might yeah. overlap with some stuff we spoke about before. Um, as as a practitioner going into a team, or if you was to step into an, a new academy role or, or somewhere, what three to four things? do you think would be overarching things that you would work on with players individually and team as a whole or MDT from a psychological perspective? First and foremost, I think the most important thing would be culture. So culture, not only within the team, but culture of the environment. So can we create an environment of psychological safety and psychological safety, meaning can players speak freely, but respectfully in front of the manager, in front of the MDT, and can there be a sharing of ideas? through creating psychological safety, I think you create openness. And I think through openness, you allow players to access that confidence gear that they need to go and express themselves on the pitch. So that would be number one. Two would be values. So values obviously drive the culture within the team. So what are the, the micro processes that a team have in place to ensure that they are achieving high performance? So is, are, are things like leaving everything out there on the pitch, treating others as we expect to be treated, you know, doing the small jobs really, really well, like the, the, the jobs they have in terms of kit, cleaning boots, making sure the footballs are pumped up. Can we have the micro processes streamlined and high performance so that it feeds into that culture that we're trying to create? And then I think perhaps the third thing that I would, I would work on is pressure training. I think pressure training is a really, really good way in which we can give teams um, artificial ways to, to, to overcome the experiences that they'll have in a match. So it's very difficult to create pressure in training, as, as we all know, because there's nothing like playing in front of a stadium in front of thousands of people. But can we manipulate training sessions or constraints to create pressure for players? Can we understand that a certain player hates doing something? So can we get them to do more of that in a certain situation? Can we push people to their absolute limit 
so that when they're in competition and the pressure's on, we can get them to perform and execute skills to the best of their ability. So those would be the three key things that I work on with any team. And I think, I think across practitioners, Ross, you'd, you'd find different things that they, they tend to go to. And I think those are general answers. I think really the work that I do is much guided by the manager and what the team needs. You might work, work in a team which really thrives under pressure. So pressure training might not necessarily be, be the thing that you go to. You might have a team that has great culture, like the New Zealand All Blacks. So they might need to, to work on something completely different. I think every team's completely different. The, the, the individuals within that team are completely different and each team will have their own individual needs. So it's a really difficult question to kind of streamline down into to three or four points. But generally speaking, those would be the three things that I'd go to. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Kev. Some fantastic points. Individualisation across the board is key, isn't it? And knowing your players, I think, has come across really well in the podcast. Kev, um, massive thank you, mate. Uh, uh, you know, I know you pretty well. You, we've worked together for, for a couple of years now and the stuff that you're doing, especially what I've seen here, you, uh, you're definitely going to be a very successful um, performance and sports psychologist when you get your chartership. So I think people should watch this space, follow you closely, because I think you'll be pioneering one day in, and hopefully in football. So thank you very much for today and, and we wish you all the best. Thanks for having me on, Ross. Really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem.